And do remain standing and turn your Bibles to the book of Nahum. I'll be looking at chapter 2. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 15, through all of chapter 2. Chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2 of the book of Nahum. Let's pray first. Our God, again, we... We know that this word is a word of judgment on unbelieving nations, on unbelieving individuals. And Lord, we might struggle to find the light and the hope in it, but Lord, we do pray that we will find it as we look for Christ in this passage. Help us to see. Help us to see him in his name. Amen. Chapter 1, 15 through chapter 2 of the book of Nahum. Hear now the word of God. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. The shield of his mighty men is red, his soldiers are clothed in scarlet, the chariots come with flashing metal on the day he musters them. The cypress spears are brandished, the chariots race madly through the streets, they rush to and fro through the squares, they gleam like torches, they dart like lightning. He remembers, he remembers his officers, they stumble as they go, they hasten to the wall, the siege tower is set up, the river gates are opened, the palace melts away, its mistress is stripped, she is carried off, her slave girls lamenting, moaning like doves and beating their breasts. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, there is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all loins. All faces grow pale. Where is a lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness went, where his cubs were, with none to disturb? The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks, Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Spiritual warfare is... A nasty business, and the struggling warrior saint wonders if he will ultimately win. The power of the flesh seems too much at times. Jesus' words to Peter resonate with us. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That is, we might will our victory, but we, we know loss too often. We know failure too regularly. The power of the world seems too inviting. Worldly allurements beckon for our attention. They call us to take and eat from the world's table. And the meal is as hard to avoid as a Thanksgiving meal is to one whose stomach hasn't known food for hours. The powers of Satan, likewise, seem overwhelming. We, 
We sing, as we did last evening's service, Martin Luther's, A mighty fortress is our God. We sing, This world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. And it's hard to sing with full faith, We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness is grim. And if we're honest, maybe we do tremble for him. And perhaps we wonder, maybe his rage we cannot endure. But Luther has us sing, lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And children, in that song, the word fell means to cut down, like to fell a tree. One little word shall cut him down. And so we come to one of those little words of God. Here, a chapter, a neglected chapter, one easily overlooked, as everyone seems to overlook Nahum. Neglected chapter that speaks of the certain destruction of Nineveh, with the fall of Nineveh. And with this fall of Nineveh, as with the fall of Babylon, comes the fall of the flesh, the world, and the devil. Nineveh was one manifestation of darkness, one national expression of the evil one. It's a question before Nineveh, before the Israelites is, will Nineveh last forever? No, of course not. Will Babylon last forever? No, of course not. Shall the power of the flesh endure forever? Will the world come out on top? Will Satan prove himself unstoppable, the king over all? Well, through this text, the answer is a definite no, of course not. Absolutely not. In fact, we see in this text that all devilish devices are ultimately done in vain when faced against divine hostility. It's all pointless. All evil attacks against the Lord are pointless. They're futile. They're done in vain. As we read in this text, we see a nation going from preparation to punishment. Preparation in battle to defeat, to punishment by the Lord God Almighty. Look again with me at verse 1 in chapter 2. The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. So here we have Nineveh prepared, as it were, for battle. In this first verse, we hear Nahum calling Nineveh to get ready for a wild ride. A force, he's saying, a force has come up against you, Nineveh, so get ready. There is a scatterer. From a human perspective, this refers to any earthly ruler who will be used by God to cause the Assyrians to scatter, to flee, to be dispersed, no longer to be a united force against what they believe to be evil. Of course, ultimately, we know that it is God who is behind all of this scattering. It is God who will scatter the Assyrians. It's God who will take down the Ninevites. The Assyrians were known for their scattering. They were known for their practice of deporting and importing conquered people into foreign lands. Now, the only kind of poetry that I like, that I like to read is poetic justice. Other poetry is much harder to read. But here it is very clear. Nineveh will eat what they have been serving for years. They will get what they've been dishing out. The temporary chastisement upon Israel, that Chastisement of scattering that God had used Assyria for, and we read about that in Isaiah 10, that will soon be Nineveh's, Nineveh's permanent punishment. And so the Lord, he issues four rapid-fire commands here in this verse. 
man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Guard your refuge, guard your ways, gird up your loins, gather your strength. Go, 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 go. Get ready. It's perhaps a bit odd, isn't it? Why would Nahum tell Nineveh to be ready? Wouldn't Nahum, or rather, wouldn't God want the advantage of the element of surprise? Why tell the enemy to be ready? After all, this is a proven tactic of war, isn't it? Don't let the enemy know that you're coming. Come at night. Come when they least suspect it. Come on Christmas Day. Don't let them know you're coming. But the sovereign Lord, overall, does not need the element of surprise. He's not worried that if Nineveh becomes wise and knows what's coming, they can just adjust and ultimately fend off that siege and stop the incoming destruction. He's not worried about them. The Lord doesn't mind telling this enemy nation what he's going to do to it. Because after all their efforts, they will amount to nothing, not even to a scratch on divine armor. And so get ready, Nahum is saying. But just know that all of your preparations are futile. They're all done in vain. They all amount to nothing. And as God does to Nineveh, he will do to Satan's kingdom as well. I hope you know this, that the book of Nahum isn't merely or primarily for our historical interests nor even for us to see how victorious God was over a godless nation all those years ago. It is those things, but it isn't only those things. Nahum is here to point forward, even beyond the days of Nineveh, to greater days of greater evil. Indeed, Nineveh was just one evil force in a very long line of the seed of Satan that is against God. That line that was established in Genesis chapter 3. Nineveh was not the first enemy, nor would Nineveh be the final enemy. But Nineveh is representative of this kingdom of darkness that is dead set against the kingdom of light, the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of the Son. And so with the coming of the Son of Man to earth, that is to say with the incarnation, with Christ's first coming, this was his way of saying to Satan, in effect, get ready, you serpent of old. Get ready for a fight because I'm coming for you. In fact, this is what we know from 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. John says, here's why Jesus came. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see it very clearly. The Son saying to Satan, I'm coming. I'm coming for you. And I'm coming to destroy your works. O. Palmer Robertson in his commentary says, Satan's method may be to subvert by striking at the heel but the seed of the woman, raised up by God, strikes a death blow at his head. The seed of the woman, Jesus, stands tall and says to Satan, I'm aiming for your head. Keep that in your head. I'm coming after you. I'm not coming from behind or the side. I'm not coming at night. I'm coming right after you, plain as day. Get ready for a fight. Get ready to be taken down. And as we turn to the next set of verses, verses 3 through 8, we read of Nineveh as a nation in panic. Look at verses 4 and 5, for instance. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. 
He remembers his officers. They stumble as they go. They hasten the wall. The siege tower is set up. In your mind's eye, beloved, do you see these poor, panicked souls? The mighty men of Nineveh have used their shields to resist the siege, but instead their shields are painted with their own blood. The men are covered in their own lifeblood. There's that moment in battle when the soldier looks at all the bloodshed and he wonders if it's his enemies or his own. And here, these Ninevites realize, all of a sudden, it's their own. And they fall to the ground and they die. And what happens from within the city walls? The people here are scrambling. They are running madly to and fro in the streets. They're crying out, what do we do? What do we do? Where do we go? They're coming. They're coming. Where can we flee to? And in verse 5, Nahum zeroes in on the king of the city. The king is amazed. He looks at the attack, but then he's comforted. He remembers, oh, yes, I have my fine, brave, noble officers. They will come to my aid. They will defend me. They will defend this city. Surely they will be the mighty victors, the mighty warriors. I know them to be. Surely we will not lose. And he looks out from his palace. He looks at them coming to his aid. He sees them coming up the wall, and they're just stumbling, just tripping all over themselves. And they cannot, they cannot help. They're too slow. They're too late. The siege work was already set up. It was already erected. It has already made contact with the wall. And the soon-to-be victors are running up the ladder. They are pounding down the wall. Sure enough, the panic failed to stave off the invaders. Nor did their fear give the victors any pause or sympathy for the conquered. No, no. Entry into the gate has now been gained. And all of the panic now turns into moaning, into groaning. The only things that we hear are the groans of the slave girls beating their breasts, wondering what will happen to them, wondering where they will end up. Where will they be taken? Our children play fight all the time. Like all children, they play inside the house and outside the house. They run around. And the one who's being pursued isn't quiet. He or she screams, Ah, someone's coming to get me. Oh, the worst thing it could be is to be gotten. The shrieking screams of a child who fears to be gotten. But of course, they should know that if their brother or sister does get them, it usually ends with perhaps a tickle or a play punch or something very light and momentary and not painful at all. And it's all fun and games. Just playtime. We don't have that here. Nahum's not playing any games. This is no joke. This is judgment. And the screams are real. The shrieks of terror are real. The moans are real. The groans are are grievous. And this is a sobering picture of what is going to happen to Satan and all those who remain in his kingdom. Threatened to be undone, the prince of darkness grim trembled because of him, 
the Son. Because even the demons shudder before the God who is one. Throughout Old Testament and New Testament history, we read of Satan's fierce but feeble attempts to kill. Yes, he always seeks someone to devour. Yes, he always is prowling around like a lion. But in reality, he is a little cub whose claws haven't come in yet. After all, what is Simba compared to Mufasa? And what is Satan, who prowls around like a lion, seeking someone to devour, what is he compared to the lion of the tribe of Judah, the Son of God? There's nothing. He's a little serpent whose venom hasn't coursed through its body just yet. And when these claws do come in, when its fangs do try to sink into the flesh of the sun, Satan's work ends up against him. And now he has to regroup. But again, all is futile. His plot is in vain. Oh yes, the devil pulled out all the stops when Jesus came on the scene. The devil gave it all he got. It's just that he don't got much. The son, as it were, says to Satan, Oh, Beelzebub, tempt me in the wilderness. Go ahead. Inflict the people with an unclean spirit. Go ahead. Possess this image bearer. Go ahead. Throw this little boy into the fire. Go ahead. Send your legions to make a man insane. Go ahead. Go ahead, Satan. Influence the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. Go ahead, Satan. Enter Judas. Go ahead. Make all of your attempts at bringing me to my end. But know this, that my end is your end. See a beautiful picture of this in the Harry Potter series in the final movie with Voldemort near the end of the story in that King's Cross. But I'm not going to give any more away because I remember that some might even be reading the Harry Potter series, even now, just not as we speak. But there is that image, and if you have seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about, that he is curled up defeated, once victorious, once malicious, but now pitiful little thing. Now the truth is, dear ones, that it's greater than having an enemy who is defeated. It is plundered. The enemy nation is a plundered one as well. Look at verses 2 and 9 with me. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Now verse 9, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or of the wealth of all precious things. Now plundering is, is almost as old as time. The Israelites received the benefits of plundering the Egyptians. Exodus talks about how they plundered the Egyptians when they left Egypt. And the Israelites enjoyed that Egyptian plunder. As Israel plundered the Egyptians, so now the Lord God will plunder the Assyrians. Assyrian plunderers have plundered the Israelites and many other nations besides. And God now is going to repay these Assyrians. The Assyrian kings boasted of their vast riches from the bodies of their enemies. There's so many documents of the, these Assyrian boasts. Just long lists of all the things that they have acquired from their enemy nations. Chariots, silver, gold, lead, copper, iron, beautiful garments, golden bulls, camels, oxen, elephants, monkeys, apes, ivory couches, animal skins, animal hides, 
and on and on. They boasted in the, the many riches that they have acquired from their enemy nations. And God is saying to them, you've once enjoyed the spoils of your conquered ones. You've once enjoyed the spoils of your victims, but now no longer. So ruin for Nineveh means restoration for Jacob. That's what verse 2 says, for the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. There's restoration for the people of God that is coming at the heels of the ruin of this enemy nation. This is why God will scatter them. We are reminded of Haggai chapter 2, verse 7, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. O. Palmer Robertson says, The treasures of the world may change hands from conqueror to conqueror, but ultimately they shall all flow to him. All of this belongs to the Lord anyways. And the Lord gives his people the riches of his people's enemies. Just not the gods. And this eventuality is ultimately seen in Christ's conquest. You remember that encounter that Jesus has with the scribes. The scribes are accusing Jesus of kicking out demons by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of Satan. Because Jesus is clearly exorcising demons from people. And the scribes have to, have, they have to figure out how to interpret that. And it's strange, isn't it? He's driving out demons by the power of demons. That's it. And, I mean, it's, it's a foolish thing to say. And Jesus identifies that folly. He says, why would Satan cast out Satan? Why would Satan try to work against himself? No, no, no. Satan doesn't cast out Satan. The Son of Man casts out Satan. We have Satan the strong man, and the Son of Man kicks the strong man out. He binds a strong man, and he plunders the strong man's goods. That's what he does. Satan doesn't rise up against himself. But the crucified and risen Son of God rises against him. So he first binds a strong man, and then he plunders all the goods. But what are these goods of Satan that the Son plunders? You and me and countless others who have been taken from one kingdom and transferred into the next. Satan thought that all those who are in his kingdom were always forever his, but he was wrong. The strong man was bound by the one who was ultimately the strong man. And his goods, Satan's goods, have been taken away from him. The Son of God, through his life, death, and resurrection, conquered the serpent, entered the kingdom of darkness, and left Satan in a pool of his own blood. Nineveh was like, was like a pool we see here in Nahum 2, whose water runs away. But as the Son of God came and conquered, he left with sword in hand, dripping with the blood of demons. And he exited the dark kingdom with the pool of the water of life for all of his captives, now saints. Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 2, 2 and 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were dead. You were, you were the walking dead in the kingdom of darkness. You were being 
ruled by the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is still at work in the sons of disobedience. That's what you were. That's how you were walking. You were walking in death, but no longer. And so we praise God with Paul from 2 Corinthians 2.14. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. We have been taken captive by Christ. We have been conquered by Christ. We who were formerly his enemies have now been made his friends. And we praise God, the Son, who has liberated us. Us who had willingly done the will of our former father, the devil. We have been liberated. We've been set free by the Son of Man. Praise be to God. Beloved, ruin for Satan means restoration for you, Christ's goods, Christ's saints. But Nineveh being plundered isn't the end state, isn't the final point. Satan left crying because of his loss is not the end of the story. Look at verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And so finally, the Lord, as it were, takes the pen from Nahum, and he speaks face to face with the king of Assyria. He says, I am against you. I am coming after you. I don't need a messenger to tell, me that, to tell you that. I'm telling you right now, to your face, I'm coming after you. This is the divine hostility mentioned earlier. All devilish devices are done in vain when faced with divine hostility. And this might seem rather unlike God. How could God come to this king of Assyria and say, I am coming against you. I'm going to burn your city down. I'm going to cause your city to be up in smoke. But we must come to terms with Nineveh. Nineveh will be a punished nation. But it first was a punishing nation. It was a malicious, punishing nation. Verses 11 and 12, we see this. Where is the lion's den, the feeding place of the young lions, where the lion and lioness wend? where his cubs were, with none to disturb. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lionesses. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. This describes the ferocious ways of Assyria. Assyrian royalty boasted in its leonine ferocity, tearing its subjects to pieces. Nineveh loved the hunt. Nineveh reveled in catching its prey. Nineveh fully delighted in taking its time to feast on its prey, eating them alive. It loved prowling around like a lion. It also loved mocking its victims. Surely you remember the account in 2 Kings 18 with the Rabshakeh from Assyria, that official sent by the Assyrian Sennacherib, who mocked the holy city in the days of Hezekiah. Read it sometime tonight, this week. Over and again, he comes after these people. Who do you trust, he says. Don't trust in the God of Hezekiah. He's going to let you down. Just like all the other gods in the surrounding nations have let 
them, their people down. I've taken them one by one, and I'm coming after you. And you cannot withstand my power. Go ahead, call upon this God of yours. Go ahead. It'll be futile. There's that mockery. A few decades earlier, he taunted Jerusalem, what God will you trust? But the Rabshakeh's mouth was shut back then. And the Assyrians' mouths will no longer feast on any prey. They will be soundly defeated and finally punished. We see that in verse 10. Desolate, desolation, and ruin. The Hebrew here are vuka, umvuka, umvulaka. These are sound-alike words that increase in length to speak of the increasing judgment that expands on the whole territory. Do you hear that rhythmic buildup? Vuka, umvuka, umvulaka. It's like a battering ram that beats down the door. Slowly but surely, Nineveh shall be Nineveh no more. And all thanks to the Lord who is over all. Nineveh's state projects the state of Satan's kingdom as well. Nineveh will be punished, but so will the, the kingdom of darkness. But we know that this dark kingdom was also a punishing kingdom. It's true that many have fallen victim to his dark ways. It's true that even the children of the devil were willing slaves to sin, to evil. It is true that some scribes and Pharisees made their converted twice the children of hell as they are. It is true that as one appearing to be an angel of light, Satan deceived many. It is true that because of him and his devilish servants, the blood of the righteous has been shed from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah. Yes, all of that is true. There is death. There, there is the blood of the martyrs. That is a seat of the church. The reign of Satan's terror has come to an end. John 1.5 says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. John 1. What's John 1? It's the beginning of the Gospel of John. Speaking of the incarnation, the coming of the Son of God. The light has come into the world, and darkness, try as it might, cannot, does not overcome the light, does not suppress the light, doesn't snuff out the light, does not overcome it, cannot overcome it. There's no more voice of Satan that is heard, but the voice of the good shepherd that his sheep hear. Read Revelation 12. And you'll see that the devil and his demons are being trampled upon and are being conquered by God's people through the blood of the Lamb and through their testimony, which is the gospel. And when is this? When's Revelation 12? When's it going to happen? Oh, it did happen. Like 2,000 years ago. It happened, and the effects of it are even now, to this day, even now, day after day, the devil is being stepped on. Or read Revelation 20. What did John see? But the defeat of Satan and the casting into utter darkness, the devil and all who belong to him. Let's not be mistaken. Yes, he has some influence still. Yes, evil still exists. 
but his is an ever-losing battle. That is to say, his heyday is 2,000 years in the past. Satan is not increasing in his power and dominion. No, no. The climax was 2,000 years ago. He's on the downward slope. It's all downhill from here, but in the bad sense, in the headed towards destruction and punishment sense. It's not going to get better for him. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. And as it gets worse and worse and worse for him, it gets better and better and better for the Son of Man and for all those who are in the Son. And so with each year, the drumbeat announcing Satan's final punishment grows louder and louder and louder. Be comforted, dear ones, because of the true, sure victory of the Lord over all his and our enemies. Why go through all of this detail in Nahum chapter 2 about what is to happen to Nineveh? It is to comfort those Israelites who have hidden in the good and jealous God who is their refuge, as we saw in Nahum 1. Why speak of the kingdom of darkness prepared for battle, then this kingdom in panic, then plundered, then finally punished? Why? It's to comfort you, to encourage your hearts, dear saints. You can sing loudly with Luther and all the church triumphant. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So be brave, brothers and sisters. Yes, our ancient foe is a mighty one, but he and his demonic minions are on their way out. Their time is up just about any time now. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, and he will soon crush Satan under your feet. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Our God, we do thank you so very much for your word, this word of judgment. We take comfort that judgment upon the wicked means restoration and glory for us, your people. Help us, Lord, to live in light of this hope, knowing that the Son is on the throne and that he is crushing Satan under our feet even now. Give us hope, we pray also, that this same power that has conquered Satan is used even now by the Spirit to conquer our own sin as we struggle every day to fight against sin. We thank you that we have the Spirit's power and we need this. We pray for it. And we're thankful, hopeful, that with the Son there is victory even over our sin. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.